This podcast is sponsored by Kava and Arculus. Stay tuned for more information about both of them later in this episode. What's up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast, where two times every week we talk to your favorite personalities in the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, music, art, sports, politics, basically anyone with a good story to tell. People in the crypto community and the media, we love to talk about regulation and the law and how it relates to crypto. The problem is none of us generally understand the law or regulation. So luckily, we have a guest today who understands both of those things and has been working in this space for quite a long time. Haley Leonard is currently a partner at Anderson Kill, but she was on the regulatory teams on the legal side for Coinbase, Bitflyer, Silvergate Bank. So it's fair to say she knows what she's talking about and can offer us some great insight on what's really happening with regulation and on the legal side of cryptocurrency. Haley, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. So, so listen, as I said, this has sort of been the hot button topic for a very long time, what's happening. And I think the most compelling story has obviously been the infrastructure bill. Uh, you know, we saw it sort of go through the Senate. There was some pushback. It looked like maybe there was going to be a compromise, but now it's gone Senate, House, back to the Senate and gone into law with the original language. How much should we be concerned about that? So I think it just makes the jobs of uh, working groups and attorneys in the space more difficult, but I think there still is a solution there. So the issue was really that the language is written over broadly, Um, and it kind of indicates that regulators um, drafting the bill didn't really understand the technology side of cryptocurrency. And so what we now need to do is really um, try to define what companies can comply with these uh, taxation and reporting requirements and what can't um, and start to sort of clear that legislative intent through, um, you know, through potentially litigation or however it needs to unfold. So it just kind of makes everyone's life a little more difficult. It would have been nice if the language had been pushed through in a clear manner. I think the industry is always struggling with things that are not clear, regulation that's a little uncertain, a little unclear. Um, So I don't think it um, will be any, you know, negative impact on the industry long term, but it just makes everyone's lives a little harder. Right. I found it very interesting, actually, that the crypto provision, which was clearly an afterthought, was the singular thing that basically froze the bill for three or four days. I even sort of joked that it was a huge advertisement for Bitcoin that was unexpected. It seems like enough people maybe get it now in government that uh, we'll see it fixed because I think a lot of people don't realize it's still two years away. Right. right. It's not like this goes into law today and all of a sudden these companies need to move offshore. We have a lot of time to fix this and already are seeing Lummis and Toomey propose bills to, to fix that language. Yeah, I think there'll be a lot more discussion, a lot more clarification. And it is exciting to see so many regulators um, and government officials involved in conversations about cryptocurrency. I agree with you. I mean, even when it's regulation that seems burdensome on the industry. If you're getting a bunch of high powered people in DC in a room talking about cryptocurrency, I view that as a a good thing long term for the industry. Do you think that we need to form a lobby packs? I mean, really put together the political infrastructure to make this happen that any other industry generally has? Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of amazing working groups in DC. So um, the Blockchain Association, Coin Center, Association of Digital Asset Markets, those three come to mind, but there's a there's a ton. Um, so and they do great work in, in the space. I think that 
other companies are starting to look at having more formalized sort of lobbying efforts. And I do think that that's important. I mean, it's becoming such a big industry with such a big market cap. It really can't be ignored. And regulation allows me to have job security. And it's, <laughs> and it just, I mean, it's always the conversation, right? Like no matter what the topic is, if you start talking about these really cool, innovative concepts like DAOs and NFTs, there's always these legal regulatory um, questions that pop up um, and tax will always be a, a part of that as well. So I do, I do think that those efforts are important and I think we're going to continue to see um, growth in those areas. Right. You just brought up DAOs, which is one of my favorite new topics. And probably you know, we talk about crypto as the Wild West. That's got to be the most fringe Wild West right now that we have for, for, for regulators and legal. And we just saw Constitution DAO formed yeah. an attempt to buy a copy of the Constitution. Of course, they lost to Ken Griffin from Citadel. But is that. that is that the form that you think we may see some of this political action and government governance uh, starting to, to take shape in the manner of DAOs? I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think I think the concept of a DAO is really interesting. I think there's still quite a ways to go um, in terms of just understanding how DAOs can sort of represent the industry as a whole. Um, so, I, I mean, I think for now we have these these working groups that are sort of focused on those efforts in D.C. and have those connections in D.C. already. Um, and I think that that's probably where we should stay for now. But but the I mean, at my law firm, Anderson Kill, sometimes we talk about this idea of how do you represent a DAO? You know, who is um, who would the conflicts check be against? Who would um, you follow up with if a bill isn't paid? So there's these so, sort of like these um, very boring logist like logistical questions around DAOs that still need answering, I think, before before we'll start seeing a huge you know, influx. And, and Wyoming is effectively already treating them like an LLC. Do you think that that's the best sort of equivalency that there is at the moment? Yep. I, I mean, I think that Wyoming's taken good initiative to understand some of these very, like you said, sort of fringe, innovative concepts. And I think that that's one way to do it. Um, I'm not sure I really have the best proposal on how, how to regulate DAOs, um, you know, but, but I think that the industry in general really struggles with getting to that point of decentralization where it's truly decentralized, um, where you truly have an organization that's decentralized or an exchange that's decentralized. Um, I think I think that we're still working on that as an industry. Yeah, I think that reasonably most likely we'll see things that are mixed, mostly decentralized with a you know a bit of sort of centralized governance or something because it's almost impossible to imagine something truly decentralized getting past yeah. regulators or operating in the United States under that right. matter. Maybe maybe yeah. I'm a, a bit pessimistic on that, but just looking at the way that they seem to treat things, that yeah. seems like the more uh, realistic outcome. No, I agree. I mean, I think what, what I've thought for many years is that FinCEN, these different regulators aren't going to just say, oh, okay, you're you're a decentralized exchange, you're a DAO, you don't, you're an ICO, not an IPO, you don't need to, you know, um, comply with the regulations that are already in place and other companies are already having to comply with. So I think we are going to see a little bit of that struggle with, um, yeah, with regulators allowing something to be out of their purview. 
Right. And even, I mean, even some of our biggest decentralized companies, Uniswap, for example, I mean, they have offices in New York City, right? They're not, uh, they, they have to sort of uh, have that sort of structure to even be able to operate in this country. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing at all. I'm actually really curious how you got into this space and into Bitcoin in the first place. Yeah. Obviously, there's a million avenues you can take as a lawyer, right. and this is a pretty small niche. Yeah, it's one I'm really happy about because I started uh, my career as a commercial litigation associate at Gordon and Reese. And then after pretty much just my first year, I thought, you know, I really, this isn't like, this isn't setting my soul on fire. This isn't like making me want to rush to the office every day. So I wanted to go down more of a financial technology path, but I really didn't know what that meant or, and it wasn't really crypto specific. Um, I joined a company called DollarX that did wholesale currency exchange along the Mexico border. So um, the, the struggle that we have in crypto of, of companies not being able to get bank accounts, of uh, anti-money laundering concerns, of money transmitter laws, all of those apply to traditional money services businesses like an exchange. So along the Mexico border, there's um, little Costa de Cambios, little exchange centers that can't get banking relationships. So what DollarX would do is be the compliance filter between the exchange centers and the bank. And because of that overview, um, they would actually exchange you know, the $100 million in pesos and transport it in an armored truck. So that was the first time I got thrown into anti-money laundering rules and actually seeing what how traditional finance is working along the borders. Um, and it seems so archaic and seems so funny to have, you know, these huge armored cars with like physical bills in them. Um, but it also got my piqued my interest about um, financial technology laws and regulations. So I was there for a while. Um, and then Silvergate Bank was also based in San Diego, and they um, found my resume and said, you know, what you're doing uh, for the banks, for, between the banks and these exchange centers, that's what we need someone to do here to determine what kind of crypto companies we should be comfortable banking. Um, we don't know if Kraken has a good program or Coinbase has a good program or Gemini or yeah, the, all these exchanges, like if we actually are holding their customers funds, is, are we be, are we opening ourselves up to a ton of money laundering risk? Um, and so that was like my, I had heard of Bitcoin. I think I still hadn't, um, I definitely hadn't bought, bought in yet. And I was intrigued, but it seemed a little bit like I think the first time anyone hears it, it maybe takes a little bit of time to sure. catch on. Um, and I just was sort of like, I don't understand like the, like who made, my question at the beginning was always like, who made this and what, <laughs> why, why would people start using this? And like, how do you actually have it? You know, all this sort of like um, ownership type questions about it. But anyways, when I joined Silvergate and started to see all these like amazing companies in the space doing things and different um, sort of like fintech interfaces that were interacting with them, different software developers and hardware developers, um, my, my, like my mind was just blown. Um, so it was Silvergate that really just opened my eyes to like what the actual, what the industry actually looked like and how accomplished a lot of these companies already were. Um, and that was back in 2013, 2014. Oh, wow. 
Um, yeah, I mean, we, Silvergate Bank is still a leading banking, you know, partner in the space for crypto companies. And when I joined, they had, they pretty much had one exchange they had onboarded. And they said, we know why we're comfortable with this exchange, but it's not a process that's repeatable. It's not really documented the way our regulators would want to see it. So pretty much my first year was creating like a repeatable process for a bank to onboard crypto companies and determine their risk. Um, and if they could sort of pass that test to get a bank account. And so in our first year, we grew from like zero, one company to a, about 75. And then I, I last I saw um, Silvergate banks up to banking about 450 companies in the space. So. Um, so it's been really awesome to see, and, and they've really, banks were a big issue for companies for so many years and still are really. Um, and I think without Silvergate's initiative there, the industry really might not be where it is today because so many banks would just shut the door on, you know, even these huge exchanges, um, and not provide banking accounts. So seeing as we still lack a lot of regular regulatory clarity, obviously, how many of those 2013 2014 issues that you were trying to solve at Silvergate at the very beginning still exist today? Um, all of them, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> um, I shouldn't say that. So back at Silvergate, one of the main issues we were dealing with was exchanges needing to get state by state money transmitter licenses and the New York bit license. That regime still is in place. Um, but companies do have other options like Wyoming um, Special Pur Purpose Depository Institute, Kraken. institution, um, yeah, Kraken, uh, different trust charters you, they can get. Even the OCC made some mentions last year about you know their trust charter and full charter. So I, so companies do have a bit more optionality there. The um, the other issue that was going on that or that didn't exist back then was this ICO SEC oversight question because at Silvergate Bank it was, we were only dealing with all these companies were only dealing with Bitcoin um, and it wasn't until I got to Bitflyer which is a large Japanese exchange that was launching here in the U.S. did I, all of a sudden this the Howey test and the issues with you know what tokens people could launch and getting approval from New York DFS for specific tokens on a token by token basis, all of that, those issues started to arise. So pretty much every year, there's maybe one or two more issues that arise, but the, at the core, like the anti-money laundering and the money transmitter license issues that we were dealing with at Silvergate, these companies are still having to deal with and still having to maintain those licenses. So the next logical question is, are those actually legitimate concerns that regulators should be worried about? I mean, is money laundering a huge problem in crypto? We obviously hear that from the sidelines, but I think when we're in it, we think that, no, it's sort of FUD and, and, and nonsense, mm -hmm. but there has to be some truth to it, I would imagine. Yeah, so I mean, there's anything that can hold value can be used to money to launder money. So anything that holds any value can be used to launder money. But what, what people misconstrue or what the media tries to misconstrue is that because Bitcoin is anonymous or private or new and sneaky that people, that criminals are rushing to Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies instead of cash. There's no evidence of that. Like if there's right. not some tidal wave of, of money laundering issues coming into the crypto space. 
And what's funny is actually a lot of times blockchain technology and some of the uh, companies that work in this space actually help law enforcement and DOJ and things solve issues because there's a ledger that shows movement of Bitcoin. And whereas with dollar bills, I give you a dollar bill and no one's going to know about that handoff. So, um, but at the end of the day, does a company like a Coinbase that takes someone's dollars and gives them another form of cash, like should they have an anti-money laundering program? Yes, they should, because a bank does, a, a traditional currency exchange company does, it just wouldn't make sense for them to not be, to not want to sort of um, prevent the onboarding of someone who's connected with illicit activity. Um, the, the problem is that that's not a popular opinion in the crypto space. Um, Satoshi Nakamoto is anonymous, and part of the goal of cryptocurrency is to get the government out of our money, right? And like get financial privacy back. So I do think that there's this balancing act that we've um, that that we've been in the industry have to find a balance so that we can continue to grow and like see our full potential. Um, and full adoption in the industry and in the US, but still try to hold true to some of those values that cryptocurrency offers, including financial privacy. I mean, I love that balanced opinion because we have this sort of cognitive dissonance, all of us, I think, in the crypto industry, we're like cheering institutional adoption and, you know, hooray micro strategy and Bitcoin ETF. Yeah. And then we're like, but get the government out of our money, yeah, right? Yeah. And it, yeah. you can't really want one without accepting the other. No, I mean, uh, I I have come to really love the the ideals that cryptocurrency presents, including the financial privacy. And there is a balancing act there. Um, there are times when I don't think the government should have as much access to our financial information and um, be all in that. But to but if you go to a Coinbase and you want to buy $10,000 of, of Bitcoin, I think handing over your ID when you do the same thing for pa PayPal, I think it unfortunately um, has to be that way for now. Right. And anyone who's deep enough down the crypto rabbit hole, I think, knows that there are other options if they don't want to go that route. Probably, right? They, they find a way uh, if, if they watch. I'm not endorsing that by any stretch, well, but that, there's plenty of plat platforms and ways if you don't want to use Coinbase. That, that's the irony of it is like the most heavily regulated exchanges and these centralized exchanges have, that have so much regulatory oversight, the bad actors aren't going there, right? right. Like they're not, they're doing other things. So, um, but then at, when we talk about more government oversight of, of things like unhosted wallets, then that, that starts to infringe on the financial privacy that people want and deserve. So that's, that's sort of the balancing act that I am talking about. But I mean, I personally don't want to work in an industry that doesn't make some sort of efforts to ensure that the technology we have in place um, has some sort of checks and balances on what it's being used for. Um, and I think that, that applies to, to dollars too. Guys, unless you've been living underneath a rock for the past few months, then you've definitely heard me talk about one of my favorite platforms, which is Kava. Kava connects the world's largest cryptocurrencies, ecosystems, and financial applications on DeFi's most trusted, scalable, and secure earning platform. 
They have borrow APYs as low as 0% and reward APYs as high as 200%. They let you mint stable coins, lend, borrow, earn, and swap safely and efficiently across the world's biggest crypto assets with a simple and intuitive user experience and the full confidence of institutional grade security and quality. Guys, if you have not checked out Kava yet, then what are you doing? You can check it out at the wolfofallstreets.link slash Kava. Do it now. Guys, I'm so excited to tell you about this new crypto cold storage solution called Arculus. Their cold storage technology keeps your crypto keys off the internet and on an Arculus keycard. With no cables and no USB connections, it insulates you from the thousands of hacking attempts that happen online every single day. You can store, swap, and send your crypto all with a simple tap of your Arculus keycard. And if someone were to get a hold of your card, it doesn't even matter because they have three factor authentication, ensuring that the only person with access to your crypto is you. Guys, you can check out Arculus at thewolfofallstreets.link slash Arculus. That's A-R-C-U-L-U-S. And they're offering $40 off if you use promo code Arculus40. Secure your assets, secure your future with Arculus. The process that you described being at these firms, you know, uh, money transmitter licenses in each and every state and KYC and AML, it's no wonder that a lot of companies just see the United States and say, I'm not going to operate here. Yeah. Right. Uh, that, who wants to go through effectively getting, you know, clarity in 50 separate States on top of just the country when they approach doing business somewhere, it seems yeah. nearly impossible. It, I mean, it's, it's impossible. It seems impossible. It's really expensive. It's really time consuming. So for a startup that wants to get into this space, I mean, you you would really have to have about 500k that you are willing to spend on that process and that's just not like sort of within a startup's budget so i do think um you know we for i mean the the theme of um stifling innovation has kind of become this like overused term but in that in that situation i think it regulation does do that because you can't expect everyone to have that much money to put forward to just launch a beta project in in the us so um so yeah i mean i at, at bitflyer and at coinbase and even now at anderson kill representing companies a big part of my job is um really overseeing the regulatory relationships that these companies have with the with you know the 40 states they have to have money transmitter licenses and new york bit license new york dfs is sort of its own beast of a of you know regulatory oversight and then and then yeah you go to the federal level and you're looking at fincen ofac sec cftc irs i mean it's like every regulator you could think of and then people still think of it as um unregulated and i'm just <laughs> yeah it lacks regulatory clarity but it's like the most heavily regulated industry right. there is right right yeah. and, and the most aggressively taxed right i mean it seems yeah. to me when I came in in 2016, 2017, the idea was you can trade all this stuff. It's tax free. Nobody's paying attention. Completely untrue, by the way, but that's what people believe. And then you dig in and actually start calculating your taxes if you're trading or moving coins around. And it's extremely aggressive. I mean, you're being taxed on transactions that would blow people's minds if they really dug, dug deep into it. Do you think that we'll get more favorable tax treatment or do you think that it's going to always sort of remain this aggressive? Um, I think there, I think that it can change based on the administration. Um, I do think that 
the government loves to tax any, you know, that's the way they get money from us is taxation. So I think, and I, I think that there's a bit of almost like hostility towards the crypto space, right? It's this sure. sort of industry that's trying to challenge traditional finance and inflation and all these concepts that that the government then has to kind of like look at and think about, well, are we really doing things the right way? So there, I think there might be a bit of that. Um, so I, I hope with time that that it's that it's ta taxed in a more reasonable manner. I agree. I think it, um, you know, oftentimes if I'm like trading or selling, I actually am trying to calculate the tax beforehand because it's just like all of a sudden you're going to have things you owe. Um, and and have to sell more to, to pay it <laughs> like right and you haven't that. realized it to dollars it's, right. i mean yeah. your average person who's like cool and you know listen people come into this space and they like buy shib or something right something yeah. that maybe not the most savvy investor would and yeah. then they're like i want bitcoin sell it into bitcoin and don't realize that they now have a taxable you know uh transaction in dollars that they've never realized it to and i think it's just over so many people's heads i think we all have friends who have had major tax bills on gains that they never realized when the yeah. market's gone down in certain years. And it's a terrifying story. It really should not be that way. No, I mean, the thing is, is the purpose, if you talk to any regulator, what part of their job and purpose that they'll say is consumer protection. But a conversation that me and my law partners also often have is what happens when a regulator whose duty is consumer protection it's actually harming consumers. Um, and I think we see that sometimes with all the different regulators, but you know, especially I've been having conversations lately about the SEC and some of these enforcement actions, like oftentimes the consumers who have been harmed never see that that outflow of cash from the company, you know, and and sometimes the fines don't make any sense compared to what the company's actually made. You know, it's just like a drop in the bucket. So, um, and the same thing I think applies to, to some of these topics like taxation. I mean, I'm, I, why, why aren't we promoting individuals growing their own personal wealth? You know what right. I mean? Like Dollar in, dollar out. Just have go from dollars into the crypto space. When I come out, treat it like a Forex exchange and call it a day. Right. <laughs> it's right. so easy. Well, and that's the thing is, so, um, you know, regulators define crypto. Every regulator defines crypto in a way that benefits them and allows them to have oversight, right? So if you think about it, we have um, FinCEN, which is under the treasury saying this is that that the exchange and the movement is money and it's money transmission. But then the IRS also under the treasury is saying, but we're going to tax it as property and do it as capital gains tax. It's like, you have to like, at some point they're going to have to find, um, to, to meet in the middle there. Right. Cause they kind of, everyone's sort of getting the, the worst of both worlds. Yeah. I give that a decade at best <laughs> before yeah. we get any sort of clarity on that. And, you know, sort of this feeling that certainly from Gensler and the SEC that maybe everything is a security, right? If we haven't defined it yet, pretty much go ahead and assume that we're going to make it a security. How is that a benefit to consumers, right? You just said, you just said that the idea is that they're supposed to protect us, but it seems not even just in crypto that generally they're just preventing opportunity. Yep. I think that's fair. I do. And I mean, I think there are individuals within the SEC who are trying to propose things like safe harbors. Um, we, we're seeing that there's a, even sort of a 
conflict, I think, within the SEC about how to regulate this space. And sometimes I don't even think the SEC quite knows where they're heading or what they're what they're going for. You know what I mean? So with some of the enforcement actions that are public, some of the enforcement actions that I'm working on confidentially within my practice, sometimes it's just really not clear what what the end game is um, with the SEC. And and I do think that I mean, I think we're in a position where the SEC really could justifiably go after most projects, which is just terrifying, you know, and, and, and exchanges that list most projects. Um, I don't know if they'll do that. I don't, because I don't understand their strategy of enforcement really, but, um, but it does feel as though Bitcoin is the sort of cleared crypto. It's not a security, it's commodity. Um, You know, Ethereum, I feel like they've, you know, sort of danced around. Um, pretty sure it's not. Yeah. But, you know, well, it's anything's possible. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm really in, interested in the, you know, the litigation going on against Ripple about XRP. Um, I'm hopeful that we'll get some sort of either law or just clarification that we can rely on as attorneys and point to. But for the most part, my law firm is very conservative when it comes to representing um, sort of specific token projects. I imagine you have to be, right? Yeah. Because because that's the tone that regulators are giving, at least publicly. Yeah. Do you view that Ripple case sort of as the weather vane for every other project down the road? Like, is what happens to Ripple going to... Uh, uh, I dare I say ripple effect. I didn't mean to have, make a pun, but uh, we'll have a ripple effect down to all of these other projects. Um, I, I think, I definitely think it will have an impact. I, you know, the, the difficult thing is that some projects I think view this space and, and think as long as I'm not the slowest one running from the bear, I'll be fine. Right. Um, that's not, that's not a approach I recommend companies take. Um, that's not a, a, an approach I would have a client um, take, but 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 some companies have different risk tolerance, and and that's the direction they go. So, I, I, but I do I, I just think that uh, the litigation will result in some sort of clarification if it goes all that that way, um, and uh, and it's something I'm I'm interested in. I think that companies will need to look to that. But every but the, the the difficult thing is the SEC really has said when you take the Howey test and you also take their guidance on the, the applicability to digital assets, it's such a fact specific discussion that companies are going to be able to say, well, we never marketed ours like that, or we never right. did that like that. So it's still not going to be totally clear. But the thought of using a test from the 1930s uh, to apply to new entirely world-changing technology is such nonsense in the first place. I mean, even them talking about, I mean, stable coins being securities, yeah. right? right? I mean, but there's no expectation of financial gain from a stable coin. It's, it's right. nonsense. And a lot of it really is across the board. Uh, you said before, obviously, let's take the worst case scenario. Everything's a security and that's the path that they take. I hope it's not the case. I don't think that will be the case. But you said obviously these projects could have you know sort of retroactive legal implications for for operating the exchanges that list these projects is there a risk to your average individual this is a question we don't get much clarity on you know mm-hmm. if you've been trading it if you 
bought something that in theory wasn't allowed to be sold to an American on Uniswap or, you know, OTC or something like that. Is there any risk to your individual? I've spoken to lawyers before who sort of say it's not the onus is on the company, right? But maybe there's another another opinion there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. It's one that I haven't sort of dug deep into, but I mean, so the, I'd say that there's obviously a range of risk. The highest is on the company itself, the project itself, um, the exchanges that list it, um, but also sort of the team involved. So that's partly why attorneys and, and CPAs and other um, professionals are worried because the SEC has pretty much called us gatekeepers. Like we're, we're the gatekeepers of this unclear regulation, which is not something I really want to be. Um, but that's also why lawyers need to be conservative. But when you get down to the individual level, um, where I get more worried is about um, individuals who are like sort of like influencers or promoters of the, of the tokens. Um, the individual purchaser themselves, I don't picture having any sort of legal risk, but it's more financial risk, right? Like depending on what happens with that token, the value, if they actually see any of like the disgorgement from the company. So, right. you know, but, but I'm also all, all of our conversation aside, I'm a huge proponent of a sort of free market. And so if individuals you know, everyone, every company and every individual has sort of their own risk tolerance. So my, the way I view it is our job is to give the best advice and ensure that companies and clients aren't, you know, ever committing crime or, or doing anything um, that crosses any sort of lines. But at the end of the day, there's business decisions that need to be made by, by clients. And it is, a, there is gray area. So, um, yeah, we're still so early. It'll just be really exciting to see where all this goes. Uh, that 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 makes perfect sense. Uh, you worked at Coinbase, so one of the most sort of egregious oversteps or just uh, aggressive approaches I've seen the SEC take yet was when Coinbase approached the SEC and said, "Listen, we have this four percent lend product that we want to offer." Uh, obviously, there's BlockFi and Celsius and Nexo and Voyager. They're all doing this. The SEC says, hey, everybody, come talk to us, you know, be open doors. And then the SEC says, don't launch it. And if you do, we're going to litigate, sue right? We're, we'll sue you. How can anyone operate in that environment? The product exists, right? It's being, right. It exists. It's being used by consumers and companies all around the country. They were offering actually lower rates and probably something safer for the consumer. They approached the SEC directly, as they were told, and they were threatened with a lawsuit. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't speak to their sort of um, conversations or, or, you know, experience there, but I think that regulators are, in some ways, almost feel like up against a wall with this technology because it's moving faster than they can. Um, and so I think when they have sort of the ability to say no, sometimes they do. And regulators are also notoriously sort of tight-lipped about their rationale because they don't want to put in writing or even say to a company, We're, we, we, we would sue you because of this, 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 and this. Um, I do think that when the, these projects that are sort of non-banks are, are in a way sort of taking, taking deposits and providing a yield 
from it. I think that there it there does need to be some sort of oversight there, and I think that the SEC probably just doesn't know what what their oversight should be or what's going on. To be honest, so I mean, I I feel for Coinbase and companies that are dealing in this space because that really is um, a lot of times you get told no by a regulator and and they're not that willing to explain why. And that's yeah. super frustrating. I mean, when I worked at Coinbase, I saw the efforts of the product attorneys and the projects that work on these. And then all of a sudden to have my role at Coinbase was more regulatory counsel. So to go talk to the SEC, CFTC, um, like New York DFS and not, not this lending product, but for others, if the answer was sort of no, or we need a ton more information, um, it was just, you know, it was just always sort of a, I think a frustrating process for the product people that are just super passionate about like rolling something out um, that there's that sort of pushback from the regulatory side that that can slow it down. Sure. We're kind of talking about the worst case scenarios here over and over again, obviously. <laughs> like it's easy to be pessimistic. What would be the best case scenario for regulation in the United States? Well, I mean, I was really excited when Brian Brooks was at the OCC. Right. Um, I thought that the idea, so in other countries like Bitflyer in Japan or Europe, there's more of a singular regulatory body that oversees everything. Um, and so it would sort of be like combining the New York DFS, SEC, CFTC into just one sort of primary regulator. To me, that's more of an ideal because for companies that are having to answer to all these different regulatory agencies, it, there's just so much time and effort that goes into that. I mean, if you think about a company that has 50 state money transmitter licenses and the New York bit license, once you get that, that also means you have to maintain those licenses. You have to get your under, under examination requirements. I mean, um, most companies have auditors on site from these different states almost year round and you're just constantly having exams so um my like sort of my hope is that we just start to have a more centralized regulation of what the what the technology is allowing people to do and not focus so much on what the technology is you know because if you, it's just sort of an advancement of traditional finance so i think i think I mean, I, I feel even though we have talked about sort of some of the negative in regulation, I do feel positive about the direction we're going. I think we're getting more and more regulators and government agencies that are are starting to get orange pilled and start starting to understand the value. We're seeing other countries like El Salvador make it legal tender. I mean, all of this stuff, they it's already been you know 10 years but that's a ton of progress i mean that's it's crazy really um and we're you know we've we've started to have uh individuals in the u.s say that they'll never ban cryptocurrency like even some of those little comments mean something because you know five six years ago people were still asking could this just become illegal in the u.s you know i mean marijuana is still legal on the federal level um so I think we're in a actually a good place and have made a lot of progress. Uh, I I agree, and it's good to hear that there's some optimism because I think yeah. it's easy to get caught in the pessimistic side. But uh, the true fact is that we're here; we're not going anywhere, and that's 
means we've advanced the ball far enough to even be on the regulators uh, on their radar, right? And yeah. so I think that uh, we will get sensible regulation with time. We won't like all of it, but I think that it will be sensible. We'll be able to operate. But one of the other huge aspects, let's take away from legal and, and regulation for, for a moment, uh, because I know that's not all you do, right? You're the, you started a company called Crypto Connect, uh, and I'd love to hear you talk about that a bit more. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so we we launched Crypto Connect. I think it's been about two, three months. Um, the idea behind it is really a it's a women led organization that helps with professional development and networking. Um, but the organization is open to everyone. Um, and part of that is really going back to the ideas of cryptocurrency. I viewed the the technology is open to everyone. And so I wanted an organization that represented female leadership, but um, was then a resource to anyone in the space or looking to get into the space. So what we've, we've done is launched in 12 major cities. We launched a few months ago and we had our, we were in the midst of having our first round of um, meetups in those cities. So New York, LA, DC, San Francisco, um, they're all on our website, cryptoconnect.org. And so what we're really trying to do is create chapters in these different cities. And we'll be launching in 12 additional cities next year. And we've all already started to have a lot of interest in international expansion. So we're talking about that. But the idea behind it kind of came from my own personal frustration with um, in this sort of like post COVID or COVID era where people are moving around a lot and not people aren't centralized in offices anymore. I was really having to like turn to my Twitter and to, to figure out who was where, hey, I'll be in Nashville this weekend. Who wants to get a coffee? What company should I meet with? Um, and I was like, this is so frustrating that there's not sort of like an umbrella organization that can help serve as a reference to other Bitcoin or crypto meetups that already exist in those cities, other events that are already happening in those cities, but also like eventually maybe list the, the main crypto companies that are based in those cities so that people can just have more of like tap into a community right away when they move or when they travel. So that's the ultimate goal. And um, yeah, I think me and, and the rest of the founding members were just super excited that the industry seemed to really um, get excited about it and, and view it as a really cool initiative. Um, and so we hope to put on some more sort of educational things in the next year and eventually host like a nationwide conference. Uh, we haven't decided location yet, but. <laughs> Inevitably it ends up in Miami. We all know that. Yeah. I was thinking Palm Springs. I'm, oh, I'm nice. Yeah. <laughs> buck the, buck the trend. Yeah. Sure. Uh, well, that, ma that makes a lot more sense for you, certainly. Yeah, I'm like, it's all about me. So everyone has how, to how do you confront the uh, tribalism in the space when you're actually trying to bring everyone together, you know, and you get the yeah. maximalists of each project uh, coming? Or do you find that uh, people are generally willing to hang out and talk to each other and build the crypto community as a whole? Yeah, I mean, so far, these events have been so great. I mean, I, I've been really excited to see there is um, sort of just naturally there's tended to be more diversity at the events, um, not just gender, but but just diversity in gender general. Um, we, you know, I I thought a lot about how to sort of brand this group because um, I didn't want gender to be the 
topic of conversation. I didn't want crypto versus Bitcoin to be the conversation. I didn't want any of it to be like the divisive conversation. I wanted it to be, hey, we're like this awesome community. And on, on Twitter, I feel like you feel that for the most part. There is sort of this tribalism. Um, I personally try to stay away from that. Um, and so this is sort of like putting crypto Twitter into the real world, right? And like allowing people to, to meet their contacts and people they follow and like on Twitter. Um, so, so far it has felt very um, unified and really, really cool. We've, we've had, I think about, I think we've had eight events so far and we'll have our final four in San Diego, Denver, Nashville and oh and and uh, Austin in December. So if anyone's in those areas or nearby, they should they should join it. Um, part of it is that the organization is free to join and be a member. The events so far, we've been able to get sponsorship and have those oh, be great. free of charge. Um, so so yeah, I think I think people just appreciate the opportunity to like meet like-minded individuals um so it's been a, it's been awesome so far i never thought i'd be like the founder i never thought i'd be I, yeah fat, fat, form a company like this but it's been awesome uh, it's very cool it's a great initiative and certainly can, can only help so do people go to the website to sign up for that is that the best way to do that yeah so we um cryptoconnect.org there's a sign up where you can choose what city you want to be affiliated with um we also have a twitter handle that both we promote events that way as well and send emails to members about events. You know, this is our first year, our first round of events. So we're kind of learning as we go, but we're, we've, we've, we had, I think about 600 signups day one, um, which was crazy. And, and the emails I get from people all over the world just blow my mind. I mean, I, I tweeted a few pictures of them because it's just like, everywhere in the world you could think of Australia I mean I just was blown away by the the interest in it and eventually my hope is that people can start taking initiative and becoming the city lead um, where they're located um, and this can become like a decentralized organization sure where, um, totally organic where, yeah so so that's the direction we're going um super passionate about it it's just I I, I love this space and I love the people in it um, and I, you know, I like that people have their differing opinions and different personalities and um, Bitcoin maximalists and whether uh, other coins, you know, and the, so I, I think, I think the whole industry is just um, awesome and entertaining and I, I like, I like bringing, bringing people together. So it's been a really exciting project. Right. Well, to bring the conversation full circle, I think that the infrastructure bill was the first time that I saw everybody come together regardless of their tribe maximalism yeah. the project they love to sort of uh, fight against a, a common enemy so to speak at that yeah. time so i think that gives great hope that that can happen when it's really really important so i think so if, if the goal is if the goal is the growth of the cryptocurrency industry rather than just a single project um i think that collaboration is always the way to go or at least having like respectful discourse um, so I try to try to stay away from anything that's not that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I always joke that no matter what you think of Ripple, since they're so 
the polarizing, obviously, you still kind of want them to beat the SEC. It's a really great example. And I, and I do think that in the end, everyone will come together when they need to. So where can everybody follow you after this conversation? I know where they can obviously sign up for Crypto Connect, but how, how can they keep up with you and what you're doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter. I try to keep it light and funny, but also post regulatory updates and things. So my handle's Haley Lennon BTC. Uh, that's H-A-I-L-E-Y-L-E-N-N-O-N-B-T-C. And um, and I also write for Forbes part-time. So uh, I'm regulatory analyst at Forbes and um, you can check out articles on the website there. Um, try to you know keep things up, up to date and, and just kind of make things digestible for people and keep the legalese out of it. So, um, so hopefully the, so hopefully it's helpful. We all need a little less legalese, right? Yeah, <laughs> I do too. <laughs> I, I'm quite sure that that's true. Well, well, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. It's great to get, uh, like I said, boots on the ground, someone who really understands what's happening uh, with legal and regulation instead of just sort of our media hot takes and, and the FUD. So I look forward to catching up with you again down the road to have a uh, conversation about how this has evolved. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me.